Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Daf Differently. I'm Rabbi Adina Lewittis, and today we're studying Tractate Shabbat, page 124. The Mishnah at the top of Duff 124 opens with a statement that all utensils, that is utensils for uses that are permitted on Shabbat, may be taken to use letzorach, shalol letzorach, either out of necessity or not out of necessity. Rabbi Nechemia disagrees and says that they may be taken only letzorach, only out of necessity. What exactly are they disagreeing about here? Rabbi suggests that what the Tanakhama is saying is that you can take a utensil that is used primarily for permitted work on Shabbat to use if it's needed, and even if it's not needed, it can be taken and moved to have access to the space it's occupying. Regarding a utensil that is used for work forbidden on Shabbat, you can take it if you need to do something permitted with it, but you can't take it simply to make use of the space it's in. Rabbah further suggests that Rabbi Nechemia's position is that even something used for permitted work can be taken only if you needed to do something with it, and not if you don't need it and just wanted space. Rabbah's assertion that taking something for the use of its space is the definition of shalolat sorach, not out of necessity, is a definition that's challenged by Rabbah, who suggests that the real debate is over moving something from the sun to the shade to prevent damage. The discussion continues focusing on moving different kinds of utensils on Shabbat to use them in a permitted way, to use the space they're occupying, or to move them from the sun to the shade in order to prevent damage to the utensil. Many different sages and their interpretations are cited. In the midst of this ongoing analysis, a question is raised by the Gemara. Do we enact prohibitions on Yom Tov for actions that may in fact be permissible because we fear people will do them on Shabbat as well? This leads to the citation of a Mishnah from Masechet Beitzah, in which we read that there is no difference between Shabbat law and Yom Tov law except regarding the issue of food preparation, which is permitted on Yom Tov. After some discussion of how this relates to our debate over moving utensils, a point is made that Beit Shammai says the only difference between Yom Tov and Shabbat involves the preparation of food, while Beit Hillel permits minimal exertion on Yom Tov in order to do something to prevent significant financial loss. In the example in our Duff, Beit Hillel permits lowering fruit through a skylight on Yom Tov in order to prevent it from getting ruined due to exposure to the elements and causing the owner financial loss. It's important to note this detail of the discussion because it acknowledges an important factor in the determination of Jewish law, not referring to financial concerns entirely, but to the broader notion that Jewish law is not meant to function in a vacuum, divorced from the realities of people's lives. The observance of Shabbat or Yom Tov is not meant to cause us pain or suffering on the other days of the week. Our traditions are there to enhance and enrich our lives, clarify our values and beliefs, and demonstrate loyalty to Jewish history and Jewish destiny. In the book of Devarim, when referring to the commandments, the Torah says, We ought to live by them. The point is to embrace the tradition in a way that sustains and nurtures life, not in a way that diminishes or compromises it. For this reason, halachic authorities like Beit Hillel and others would frequently consider the impact of certain legal requirements on people's lives, and yes, sometimes even the cost of observance, and would define their positions in light of those realities. A few lines later, we gain additional insight into the process of how sages arrived at their legal positions. Rav Mari had some pillows that were lying out in the sun on Shabbat. He came to Rava and asked what the halacha is about moving them inside. Rava said it's permissible. Rav Mari replied that he had other ones he could use and didn't really have to move these out of the sun. 
Rava said he could move these even if he didn't need them for himself and use them instead for guests. Rav Mari replied that he had other ones he could use for guests. In hearing Rav Mari's reluctance to follow the ruling he had asked for from him, Rava said the following to him. You clearly follow the ruling of Rava, who prohibited moving a permitted use utensil from the sun to the shade on Shabbat. Therefore, l'kulei al-mashari l'didach asir. For everyone else, it's permitted to move their pillows inside, but for you, it's prohibited. Now, Rava was not being sarcastic or punitive towards Rav Mari. He was merely educating him in what we might call the ethics of halachic decision-making. If you follow a particular authority's shita or legal perspective, then you need to follow through and abide by the practical implications of that shita. You can't claim to support the legal reasoning of one teacher, but act according to the rulings of another who has a different legal perspective. There's something disingenuous about that, Rava is, su- is suggesting. Similarly, we ought not choose our halachic authorities by the answers we think they'll give us, but rather by the halachic process and reasoning they employ, which deem appropriate and worthy, which we deem appropriate worthy, appropriate and worthy of following. As tempting as it might be to seek the psak, the halachic ruling of someone whom you know will rule in the way you'd like, that kind of religious life lacks a certain amount of integrity. More respectful and appropriate is to seek the rulings of someone with whom you have a meaningful intellectual and spiritual connection and abide by the requirements that are articulated by that person. A related question is now cited by the Gemara about moving brooms made of cloth and those made of palm leaves from the sun to the shade on Shabbat. Once again, a sugya about a particular matter of Jewish law reveals a deeper insight into the way the whole system functions. The question revolves around moving a broom on Shabbat and requires clarification about which type of of broom we're discussing and what type of movement we're discussing. To use it, to use the space it's occupying, or to get it out of the sun. Some brooms are considered those shlemachto mutar, those whose regular use is one that's permitted on Shabbat. And some sages permitted moving such utensils in, their various, in these various ways. Some brooms considered those shemalachto asur, those whose regular use is not permitted on Shabbat. And while some sages allowed limited movement of these types of utensils, none of the sages permitted moving a forbidden use utensil on Shabbat simply to get it out of the sun and into the shade. Most interesting is the fact that there were two types of brooms being considered, a broom with cloth bristles used to wipe crumbs off the table, which were permitted use utensils, and ones made of palm leaves, which were used to sweep floors. These were considered forbidden use utensils, because in Talmudic times, most floors were made of dirt, and if you swept with such a broom, you would move dirt into any grooves that existed in the floor, and in that way, you'd be violating the melacha, the labor of building. Even though it wouldn't be your intention to be building up the floor while sweeping, it's a foregone consequence of using the broom, and therefore it's prohibited by some sages. Such a dynamic is called a psikresha, an action where the unintended consequence is inevitable. The other side of the argument concerning cases of a psikresha in our own times, like, say, opening the fridge door on Shabbat when you know the light inside is going to illuminate, suggests that the requirement of malechet machshevet, intentional labor, is the essence of the kinds of work that are forbidden on Shabbat. And since your intention when opening the fridge is merely to get something to eat and not turn on a light, This thinking would not consider the act a violation of Shabbat law. Back to the brooms. Today, when most of us don't have floors made of dirt, but floors that are covered and smooth, it's considered okay to sweep on on Shabbat. And a broom is considered a permitted use utensil. What that signals to us is the evolutionary character of Jewish law. As the world develops and as changes are experienced in different sectors of society, technology, science, medicine, social mores, so does the halacha around those developments. So sweeping your floor on Shabbat was once considered prohibited on Shabbat, and now it is no longer. Think about how the invention of electricity and of timers changed the rules around the use of light on Shabbat, now that it wasn't dependent on stoking a fire. 
or how the refinement of food science has led to rethinking around such traditions as keeping meat and fish separate for fear of contamination. The next Mishnah turns its attention to the status of fragments of utensils, shards of broken utensils. Are they muktza or not? The Tanakama, the anonymous first opinion in the Mishnah, states that as long as the fragments are still able to be used to actually do some permitted task, then they're not muktza and can be taken. Bilvat sheyehu osin me'ein melacha. For example, fragments of a mixing bowl that can be used to cover the mouth of a cask. Rabbi Huda says it's only okay to take the fragments if they can be used to perform a semblance of their original task. For example, fragments of a mixing bowl that can be used to pour food into. The Gemara tries to explain the source of the difference of opinion between the Tanaka and Rabbi Huda by first suggesting that the conflict is based on the fact that the utensil broke on Erev Shabbat. And they disagree on what kind of work can be done with the shards. Any kind of work or only the same as was intended. Both would agree if it broke on Shabbat, then the shards would be fine because they were part of the utensil when Shabbat began, and thus were dedicated to be used right from the get-go. That view is rejected, and another explanation of the difference of opinion is brought. This time it suggested that the utensil broke on Shabbat itself, and while the Tanakhama rules it's okay to use for any kind of task, Rabbi Yehuda, permitted task that is, Rabbi Yehuda says it must be for the same originally intended task, otherwise it would be considered something new that's been created on Shabbat, and therefore muktzah, what's known as nolad. The discussion then turns to items no longer fit for their previous use and relates the ruling that bricks left over from construction may be moved and used as seats, provided they're not organized in a way that indicates they're intended for further use after Shabbat, because that would make them muktzah. Towards the end of the daf, we read of an episode involving Rava walking in the marketplace of a, the town of Machoza, and his shoes got dirty from the mud. His servant took a shard of pottery or something that was lying on the ground and began to wipe the mud off his shoes. His friends, other rabbis, yelled at him to stop. Rava threw an insult at them in return. These guys not only lack in proper learning, but they teach their mistakes to others. He explained his position. If this shard were in a public courtyard, it could be used for an acceptable task. Therefore, here in the marketplace, it can be used also. What's most interesting to me are two aspects of this story. Number one, Rava was walking around the marketplace on Shabbos. Of course, he was just window shopping or stall shopping. But we tend to romanticize the past and probably imagine sages like Rava spending Shabbat either in shul, at home with family, or at the Beit Midrash. Who thought he'd take a walk through the commercial district of the day on the day of rest? This little anecdote challenges our assumptions about how the sages lived and what defined piety in those days. Many of the sages had more open or inclusive readings of Jewish law and observance than the gradual narrowing of Jewish tradition in many circles in our own day would have us believe. Number two, while we'd like to think the collegiality of the sages puts the antics of the Israeli Knesset or even the U.S. Congress to shame. Here's one sage throwing an insult at others in public after having been chastised by them, confirming that though they may have been pious scholars of Jewish law, the sages were also human and sometimes fell prey to pettiness, becoming combative with one another. For that, I think we can be thankful. Better a teacher who's flawed but relatable than a saint who's perfect and beyond reach. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.